Welcome to Zen Mom and the Addict. I'm Mary. Really happy you could hop on today and listen to this really interesting conversation with an everyday guru. Kyle Dodson joins me today. Kyle's so eloquent with his words as he talks about his work that he's doing in the world. You know, he is someone that walks in authenticity. He is finding meaning or has found it um, and dug deep to find it, I would say, as we'll learn, but really has clarity around um, the work he's here to do. So I'm excited to have this conversation with him and to have you all a part of that. I think we all have a lot to learn. He talks about his life. He talks about race and he talks about the work that he's done trying to build a community to have meaningful conversations around equity, diversity, and inclusion. And um, we all have a lot to learn. I certainly do, but I just feel very honored that Kyle was so generous with his time to come on and to share just a snippet of um, opening the lid to his world and to some things we need to be paying attention to um, so that we can begin to understand where we're at and maybe begin to see a little light on the road that can take us forward. So get comfortable or get on your bike, put in your earbuds, whatever you need to do. Um, I think you're really gonna enjoy this. So let's get to the show. So hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Zen Mama in the Attic. Uh, which I have just started this series on everyday gurus, which I feel like I'm sitting with one right now for sure. What a privilege to be here today with Kyle Dodson. Thanks, Kyle. Hey, Mary, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So we kind of met serendipitously, I would say. Well, I think, Kyle, is, is it okay if I talk about how we met? Please, please. Yeah. Go right ahead. <laughs> Good for my um, story. Yeah, I work in healthcare and Kyle came in because he was having a hip issue when I did an injection on him. But, um, you know, even though you came in in the midst of COVID and we were masked up, there's just this energy that you put off and this magnetism and this charisma that I was just very moved by. You know, you talked a little bit about what you do in the world. Now that I know all that you do in the world, you're a very humble person also. Because more, we were just talking about, you know, us as human beings coming together around the issues that are going on right now. It was real and relevant. But um, you definitely have an energy that I think moves people. And I, I actually never do this, but you told me you were worked uh, for the why. So I Googled you after you left. <laughs> and I reached out to you because I just felt like there was a place to connect. And that was maybe a year or nine months ago. Yeah. 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 And you were like, you know, very kind and responsive to me. Yeah. Let's connect at some point. Your, your plate was pretty full at the time. And then we just ran into each other again a couple of weeks ago when you were in getting, the healthcare setting, in the healthcare <laughs> setting. And, uh, you know, then decided it was time to go for a walk together and which we did. And, down by the waterfront, which was awesome and talked about everything real and relevant that's going on in our lives right now as, as people. And um, you've worn so many hats. Um, I'll just name a few that I looked up about you just so people know who you are. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you were um, multicultural 
student affairs director at St. Mike's. Yep. You were a principal at an elementary school in Massachusetts. You were director for services and civic engagement at Champlain College. And now you're the president and CEO at the Greater Burlington YMCA. That's a really high level view. I'm sure there's a lot of things that fill in there, but you've done a lot. I have, I have. It might be helpful just um, because, uh, you know, there are a different uh, ilk just to add. Um, I think it's important that people know that the school was in Dorchester, Massachusetts. So um, if people had in their mind uh, Newton or Wellesley, it was not that. It was uh, probably one of uh, Boston's most challenged neighborhoods. We had families who really struggled. Uh, unfortunately, it was not uh, uncommon for uh, people who are in the school and in the community to have uh, family members uh, shot and or killed over the weekend. Um, mm. You know, it was, it, was, it was one of those communities that struggles. And so it was really uh, particularly powerful to be in a place where you get to see firsthand if you're uh, one of those people who had the good fortune to not grow up in that kind of uh, those circumstances um, uh, where you don't have the resources and safety you want, uh, you realize that people in that circumstance, the vast majority are just working hard every day to put it together and take care of their families. And there's a relatively low number, uh, but who are in such a bad place uh, that they're making life really difficult for themselves and the other people in the community because they're so um, you know, despairing and so traumatized that uh, it often leads to decisions that aren't the healthiest for them or the community. Uh, it's really interesting to get a firsthand view of that as opposed to a media, you know, yeah. uh, remove the people live next to you. The, the traumas happen, you know, around the corner from you. It's very different when, when you see that. So I did that. And then prior to that, prior to the um, St. Mike's, I was uh, actually, uh, I was a trader. I was a bond trader. So I worked on Wall Street uh, and I had an experience like when you see a movie uh, like Wolf of Wall Street, my yeah. experience wasn't quite that depraved, but but I get it. And I understand that kind of money and that kind of greed and that kind of energy that exists in that profession. Uh, I kind of ran from that profession, but I'm glad I had that experience yeah. to be young 20s in New York City um, and in a world very different. I didn't grow up that way. I grew up, I say, pretty modest middle class. And so I got exposed to some pretty extreme wealth and how what kind of decisions people make in those circumstances so I could judge better. You know, everyone, not everyone, but lots of people in America at least think they want to be wealthy when they grow up. But, you know, when you get a close up look at it, sometimes it's not all it's cracked up to be. Um, Certainly so, doesn't buy happiness. It, that, that is true. It does mm -hmm. not at all. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so I had that experience. And then the Vermont uh, thing is when I left uh, um, my experience uh, in financial services, um, I drove to Alaska uh, with mm -hmm. Uh, the woman who we were connected then, but she, we would ultimately get married. Her name's Christine. And uh, so we uh, we drove to Alaska and spent six months. We worked in a, in the fishing industry. Uh, uh, whereabouts in Alaska were you? So I, we were on I, the Kenai Peninsula. Spent some time oh, yeah. in Homer. And, uh, nice. I have a good friend from Homer. And I've spent some time in Chitna, which is okay. north of Anchorage. I have some relatives that live there. Oh, Alaska's cool, huh? Oh man, you get you truly get that sense of the final frontier. I was going to say right? it's the frontier, and but yeah. the interesting is the juxtaposition, right? Because Anchorage is a modern city. When you're in Anchorage, yeah. right, it's a city, but you don't have to go far, and you're out there. Yeah, it's really pretty, right? pretty much a contrast. Really yeah, yeah, such a contrast, and just the animals, like you know, bald eagles and caribou, and you know, elk. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, uh, bears. I was, and yeah, I mean, I almost, I remember it was like a six hour drive. I went up with my mom 
Uh, my uncle was actually kind of ill at the time and she wanted to see him. So we drove up, we flew and drove up. And I remember like closing, like feeling like I needed to close my eyes. I mean, I live in Vermont, it's a beautiful state, right. but I was almost overwhelmed by that raw beauty. You yeah. know, it was, it was really something else. And I, I felt the same way about the people, especially that lived out in that, like that little rural fishing village that they lived in. Yep. You know, I think we talk a lot about principles and this might go back to what you experienced in Massachusetts, but they live their values. You like, you don't just tote your talk. Your, your people are close and they're watching you and you're, you're living very raw and, you know, with the wildlife there too, yeah. and really just uh, everyday existence. And um, yeah, I mean, I found their genuineness. Like it was such, I've been up a couple times and man, what a place to reset your dial. I agree. And you talked about the small fishing village and maybe we'll get to this in other parts of the conversation in terms of all of the troubles we're facing in society today and, and some sort of uh, where do we go from here thoughts that, I imagine many of us have, yeah. I'm not prescribing it. I'm not even sure what it would look like to go back to a simpler time. But, mm -hmm. but I would say that what I experienced there, and I think sometimes in rural Vermont, it happens to a little lesser degree because we're so much closer to civilization. But um, there's something that I think forms in that village, right? There's a, there's a codependence. Um, and then, you know, in a rural setting, oftentimes because you have nature's bounty and people calibrate their lives to that, people have what they need, right? So you don't have that same sense of deprivation and want that you get in busy, more complicated um, uh, social situations. Um, and it, there's, there's a lot of enlightened self-interest, right? So you help your neighbor because you know at some point you're gonna need help, right? Whether right. it's a barn raising or your car gets stuck in the ditch or whatever happens, um, hopefully you do it. And I think there is a great deal of uh, uh, just uh, neighborliness and compassion, but there also is enlightened self-interest, right? And, yeah. and I'm a big fan of that. So, um, so not to idealize those settings, but I think things are possible uh, in those settings in terms of how humans come together and, and perhaps live together in a more healthy fashion. Than yeah, I, I do believe that they're not as siloed as we are here, you know? Right, yeah. Um, and I felt that connection. It doesn't mean there wasn't sometimes an edge to that either. Sure. Right. Um, right? right. But they saw the value of Not each utopia, other. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just yeah. the human journey. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's a beautiful place. So you spent some time there. I did. Yep. And uh, yeah, it was, it was wonderful and just uh, a cool reset. Like I said, so that was between my experience of working um, in financial services and then kind of me stepping out of the rat race, if you will. Um, and then when I reentered, I came into education. Uh, so that's where I was in higher ed. I went to St. Mike's and through St. Mike's, I realized that I was interested in urban public education because spending time on a college, I spent a lot of time working with um, minority uh, and low income students. And then I you know, realized when you go to a kind of middle selective college and above, you find a smattering of, of kids who grew up in an urban experience and um, you know, black and brown and, and low income. Uh, and I realized that I wanted to be part of work back in the community that gave more young people from those circumstances the opportunity okay. to, to perspire ed. And that's, yeah. that helped me go. And I went to a principal training program. That's how I made the shift to public education. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. So I'm curious about that. Like your journey informing your direction and what you saw 
You didn't necessarily come from that. No. But you obviously have a desire in your heart about helping to serve the underserved, right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, so, so yeah, be, be interesting. I like the question to kind of trace where that came from. So I grew up, uh, you know, I, I, not at all, um, uh, wealthy, but certainly, uh, with more stability than the young people that I've felt driven and have uh, attempted to support in some way. So my parents came from very modest circumstance. You'd say they were probably working poor when they were growing up, neither went to college, uh, but they're hardworking, just, uh, you know, awesome folks. And they, we're lucky to be in that period of America, I'd say, kind of like that post-World War II economic boom, um, mm. you know, late 50s, early 60s. And they both got with organizations uh, that were the kind of back in the days when you would just get with a corporation and stay your whole career. Right. And that was their experience. So my mom was with what was called New Jersey Bell before the breakup in AT&T, right? It was, uh, okay. it was the you know, AT&T affiliate in New Jersey. And she just worked her way up the ranks and she became a manager by the time I was a teenager. And my dad worked for a uh, uh, organization that was a sole distributor for carrier air conditioning. And so this is the seventies when you're building malls and corporate parks. And so those yeah. big units that, you know, climate control those buildings, that was his uh, business. So it was booming and he rode that wave and he became a manager. So by the time I was, you know, in high school, we lived in a Jersey suburb and, we had two cars and we took modest vacations and my parents, you know, owned their home. So that was my uh, experience. And yeah. I think, uh, so I was a, you know, I was an athlete and I had, I had incredible mentors. I played basketball and football, mm. but particularly in basketball, I had all these people who uh, supported me in my life in ways that were just kind of like, it makes you have to step back and say, why'd they do that? Right. There was yeah. nothing in it for them, except they were good hearted people. Yeah. Like I almost got a little choked up these. And an interesting thing, you know, Mary, this, this, this would be a, a digression. We wouldn't go there, but, but I got to say in terms of the troubles in the world, these were all men mm -hmm. and they had amazing access to me an amazing trust and did not betray that trust. Given mm -hmm. the stories that go around, it's amazing. Yeah. Like, I mean, I spent my parents trust, totally trusted. I spent an inordinate amount of time with these men and it was mm -hmm. always, benevolent and above board and just spectacular. They were incredible, caring people who uh, just, uh, you know, supported me. My parents are incredible people, but I had all these surrogate parents, you know, yeah. adults who taught me about, you know, how to move through the world, how to take care of others, how to comport yourself. I'm, you know, I'm old school around politeness and respect uh, sort of issues. So yeah, that was, that was incredible. So I think the idea of giving of like, there's something more than you, like a selflessness mm -hmm. and otherness mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. modeled for me really well uh, when I was yeah. young. Yeah. And then when I got on Wall Street, like I think uh, early on, I, I saw the, 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 um, the disconnect between what was happening there and how money was treated there and the rest of the world. And so I tried to do some volunteering. I volunteered with Covenant House in New York. Mm -hmm. okay. um, it, was, it, was, it was kind of through Catholic charities and it was a, a basically a home for troubled youth and runaway, but definitely with a strong Catholic focus. So I did that and that was interesting. So I would go, like it was a big commitment on Friday nights, I'd go like a five to 9 p.m. And yeah. you just go, there was an actual physical place and I'd go there and play basketball and talk with kids. But nice. that was very different than my 23 year old. Yeah. You know, when, when I wasn't there, I would be yeah. going out on entertainment budgets and, you know, spending a lot yeah. of money and, you know, partying like a 20 year old in New York. So. Yeah. So you felt the contrast there. Yeah. Yeah. Quite yeah. a contrast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that got me 
thinking about it. And then when I left that and, and you know, did the walkabout in Alaska and I, I ski bum, that's what we can say. I, I came to Vermont to ski at Med River Glen. I worked there mm-hmm. for a couple of seasons and um, yeah, I just thought, hey, I've been very blessed with my education. So I got into education and then that got me thinking about the gap between access and achievement in education. So I wanted to work on those who um, weren't being served as well and uh, weren't performing as well in academic settings. And that led me to working in uh, with uh, low-income youth and uh, students of color, et cetera. Wow, well, thanks for sharing that, Kyle, because what's sticking out to me is something that I see in you that I don't think everyone has by any means. And that is that idea of, I knew when I talked about that, like this awareness and curiosity as you move through life. And, you know, I myself personally will say I had a lot of those same things growing up, really good mentors. My mother was like the volunteer queen of, (laughs) you know, overextension um, and how to treat people. And she was a nurse and probably influenced me in my direction. But I have to be honest and say, like, I did look at that and I tried to build those pillars of what would really be attractive to the outside world, right? The home, the three kids, the golden retriever, um, the two cars, the, you know, the land. And then I wasn't happy. And I I have to honestly say, I know I'm a, a person that leads with my heart now. And perhaps this is part of my journey, but I wasn't always saying like, how can I serve? Like I innately did it in healthcare without really knowing and I had my kids, but I was really just checking, <laughs> checking the boxes of what I thought I should be doing. And I love um, to hear how you move through it. And I think it's such a great model for people. And I, I get to this later in my story, how my circumstances <laughs> inform my direction to this a moment right here. Um, <laughs> you are now. Yeah, but I think it's very easy to sort of just do this thing and then go, oh my goodness. Whereas I feel like, you know, you tried the Wall Street thing, you felt obviously viscerally that that didn't align with you. And you just had this like call to serve at a really young point in your life, really. A lot of people are pretty self-absorbed at that stage, especially if life's going okay for them, you know? And so, you know, thank you for that. I mean, that's a model, I think, of what you probably brought to all of your leadership roles and you do now. And we talked about that when we walked about how, if we could all just move through life with this lens of curiosity and this awareness of what we're, we're feeling, right. And knowing that maybe we could hold space for what others might be feeling that we can't see, right. But could appreciate um, the difference you know, then where would that land us in a way to connect with each other, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I, I like that, Mir. So there's a couple of things I want to riff on. What you just said there, where would that lead us in our ability to connect with one another? And what I might argue is that um, perhaps we could uh, give ourselves certain experiences that help us to better connect with ourselves. Yeah. And the, the, like, the better we're able to connect with ourselves, meaning our true selves, whatever, our inner self, our soul, our meaning, our purpose, et cetera. If, yeah. we, if we give ourselves a space to do that work and we actually have some success, which leads to the awareness, yeah. then I think we're in a better place to give, to be thinking about giving. Um, but in the absence, I think of that self-awareness, we can get caught in a situation where we're, we're feeding, right? Because there's the, the, the body and the soul and the psyche wants certain, I think, satisfaction, um, right and contentedness, 
Um, yeah. But we're often, I think, might fall into a trap of seeking it in places and through means that end up not being satisfying. So yeah. we keep on going, right? We're not yeah. realizing it's not satisfying. So we go for more things that aren't the things that ultimately are satisfying. Yeah. Right. So what I was, you know, one thing that I've learned and I encourage young people, it's interesting. I think it's beginning to happen more um, because of COVID. And that is uh, taking a little time out, like not going boom, boom, boom. So I think when you and I grew up, uh, Mary, it was this, you know, if you were going to be successful and if you were going to go and be upper middle class and have that family and have the things you want and a vacation home and all that, you went to the most competitive college you can go to and you worked really hard. And then when you got out, if you had done the pre-professional track, you became a lawyer or a doctor, and that was pretty clear. But if you didn't do that, you got into something else, maybe sales, some kind of business thing. And then you went back to grad school to further give yourself the credentials to keep you know, pursuing that middle-class lifestyle. And if you never stepped off that hamster wheel, you found a partner who shared those values, the values of building that edifice of middle-class respectability. Mm-hmm. You got in with that person and maybe you're on this, now you're in this thing where perhaps you're not being as reflective as might be healthy for you and saying, why am I making this choice? Am I making this choice because Hallmark cards kind of plotted the choice out for me? I get a nice home with a nice yard and respectable people and I drive a respectable car and I have cute little kids that do piano and violin lessons and they play soccer and they do all this. And, and this is not to denigrate any of that, but to say, have you given yourself the opportunity to say, why are you doing this? To what end? Yeah. What's it about? What's, and what, what drives all of that? And once yeah. you get all that, then what happens? If that, if that was the goal to get those things, then once you get it, you know, where does that leave you? And so, um, you know, so that time that I left financial services, because that was the place and that was a, you know, a crossroads where most of my peers just settled into becoming rich Wall Street people who live in Greenwich and Westchester or Upper West Side. And once again, I'm not criticizing. Everyone's got to make their choice, but yeah, that wouldn't have been right for me. That would have been a mm-hmm. real uh, problem. And I think you, you, you named something, it's curiosity. I, and I feel so, uh, so um, blessed and fortunate that I still have like a kid's awe at the world, like mm-hmm. little things can really uh, turn me on. Like something, you know, little phenomena, whether a natural phenomena or social phenomena. And and I wanna go learn about it and I wanna go do it. I wanna be part of it. And so that helped me, you know, get off the the rat race. I was like, okay, you know, I was starting to make decent money. I was, you know, 20 something into the six figures. And, you know, that whole thing was was set. And I was like, this isn't it. Don't know what it is, but this isn't it. Right. Luckily parents who supported me. So I was making more money than either of my parents. And they came from my circumstance and they supported me to drop out and to take all this education, some part of which they paid for and go find myself. And, and, and they didn't grow up in a world where you had the luxury of going to find yourself. Yeah, that was, right. you, you went to work because you had to eat, <laughs> you know? And uh, so, so their ability to support me is really an amazing thing. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. And oh yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I have two things that are coming up for me. And one is around that curiosity. Um, Do you think we can cultivate that in people, you know? Uh, Younger, Mary, I think it gets harder, right? So, so a a cool thing was my, my, um, the, when I was involved in uh, public education in Boston. So it was uh, the school that I was part of was a pre-K to third grade school. 
um, which was a unique thing because Boston at the time was just starting to kind of scale up and, and provide more pre-kindergarten spots. So still, you know, we're talking about it now. This is, so that's, you know, 20, uh, 2004. So almost 20 years later, we're still talking about universal high quality childcare, which ultimately I believe is getting to the point where school for three-year-olds is just like what we do now for kindergarten. Like you enroll mm -hmm. your kid in your town, paid for by taxes in kindergarten. We need that to begin at least at three years old. Mm. Right. But it's going to be expensive because that's two more years and we're already have education funding issues. So that's adding two years to the tax base. So there's lots of things we got to do to think about that. But for all children, particularly for low income children who often don't have the kind of privilege of richness in their life, of resources, of travel, of um, language, language is huge. Right. So uh, um, the brain develops by language and yeah. uh, lots of languages. There's a, there's a study I love to reference. It's called the 30 million word gap. And these researchers embedded themselves in families, three different sets of families, some poor families, some kind of working class, lower middle class and upper income families. And the researchers, all they did was record utterances of language, how much language is used. And generally, people who've had the privilege of more education use more language and more varied language. And that helps kids grow. So it was saying that in that study, the kids in the poorest group and the kids in the wealthiest group, by age four, there was a 30 million word gaps, meaning the, the rich kid had heard 30 million more words, right? So, right. Right? so if, if, you know, for example, in discipline, in often in low-income families where the, the parents uh, don't have the same emotional resource and capacity because they're working hard, they got a lot going on in their life, they don't have time to meditate and sit in these beautiful settings like you and I are sitting and relax and mm -hmm. talk about life. So the kid does something wrong, you say, shut up, I told you not to do that. Yeah. But in another household, it's like, honey, you know we've talked about that. Mm -hmm. You need to use your words. I can see that you're frustrated. Mm -hmm. I can see that perhaps you're discouraged. Perhaps we can talk about it. What was it that you were trying to accomplish with the blocks? I know it really upsets you when the blocks fall down. What were you trying to build? Oh, you were trying to build a gas station like the one we saw last night. Oh, where they pump gas. Remember in that time, petroleum. Yeah, petroleum's another word for mm. gas. You're right. right. And then mm. it's the same thing. Like the, yeah. But, but it was like, there's like a thousand words versus one. Yeah. And it just, you know, I was, and it was interesting because I was going through um, a time of being educated. So I was, you know, I wasn't trained as an early childhood educator, but I had these really smart, gifted people around me. And so we're talking about the science of the brain, but my kids were that age. So I have three sons. My, yeah. my sons went in the school that I was in. Okay. So I was watching what happens and how children develop and watching, unfortunately, the uh, disconnect between my children yeah. who had the resources my household could provide versus the children we were the mm -hmm. majority of the children in the school who did not have that. Mm -hmm. And, and you can just see it. It's like, so unfortunately there's no mystery in the achievement gap, mm -hmm. right? The achievement gap is what it is because of class and wealth. Like I would say, you know, this is kind of flippant. I wouldn't say it's everyone, but, but if there wasn't a gap, then that would mean there's something wrong with my kids because given the experience my kids had, 
if they weren't performing at a higher level, there would be something wrong with them. They should not perform like these kids. When, you know, when their house has a thousand books, this house has five books and five TVs. We had one little 13 inch TV that we let them watch. I don't know, not very often. And, and, you know, you go in another house, it was three rooms, apartment, three kids, young mom, three different dads and screens everywhere and video games everywhere and not a book to be seen. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's not that much of a mystery. Yeah, that's interesting. It's also making me think about, that was a while ago, your kids are grown. (laughs) And I'm just thinking about how common it is now though, the screen and in some ways, perhaps it's allowing a little more exposure. I mean, we all know the detriment of it too, but maybe, you know, I try to see if there's gifts there that might (laughs) close some of those gaps, but um, that, that is really interesting. Um, and we started in a place of curiosity. So you're talking about brain development and, and even the, the piece around, you know, mindfulness, right. And how that can cultivate and grow the areas of our prefrontal cortex that really allow us to, um, be better regulated, right. Or, to right. see a, with a maybe a little more positive lens of life that really I think helps to cultivate that curiosity. You know, we are we are all built in with this negativity bias, right? That's our survival mechanism. We're hardwired for that. And I think when we practice, and when I know my I have my grandchildren now in elementary, middle, and high school, but they practice mindfulness at school too, which you know what is just amazing. Um, so I just can't help but think again, just back to the early intervention, you know, just skills like that to be able to not be as reactive to, to pause and notice, right? That's my biggest thing is with all this, like plugged in all the time, um, are, you know, we need to still be able to notice what's happening around us to sit across from each other and have a meaningful conversation, Um, I was at a DC um, mindfulness conference probably five plus years ago now, and they were saying the number one factor in defining the success of an organization was the ability of their employees to pay attention. Hmm. (laughs) And I was like, wow, you know, that's pretty profound. It is. And that was five years ago, and I'm not sure we're getting better at it. Yeah. 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 Well, it's funny, I, I um, you know, just kind of currently I talk with my girlfriend who has a busy life and we often will discuss about attention to task and when she's feeling like she's more on and how productive she can be and other times when she's feeling super distracted. And so I guess that just your comment about attention, ability to pay attention kind of resonates yeah. that, that we live in a world where it's hard. There's lots of things that um, split our attention yeah. and we're buying for our attention, very seductive things, things that are purposefully meant to distract us. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, more aware of that. it's hard not to like, it's, 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 you know, I'm always trying to be leery of kind of waxing nostalgic about a time gone by, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think, and I was in a conversation yesterday with my son, who's a cognitive science major. And we were talking about linguistics, him and uh, actually my girlfriend and I, once again, and uh, I was saying that, you know, it's been presented to me oftentimes that the thing that distinguishes humans in the, ma- in the mammalian kingdom is our language. 
right? We're the only uh, who have language at the level we have it, right? We're, we're yeah. learning that some others, you know, uh, apparently dolphins communicate and whales communicate, right? And, yeah, yeah. And, uh, the, the ape um, community communicates, Plants. but not like we do, <laughs> right? And so to the way that, to the degree that that's what distinguishes us, yeah. back to what you said, I think there's something fundamental about human to human contact and using our communication. And therefore I would, I would focus on that um, so, and, and try to get from some kind of Luddite um, knee-jerk criticism of media and technology, but just saying media and technology can, it doesn't have to. And it seems like there may be some thoughtful ways to use it to bring us together and to amplify our humanness. But yeah. when it is used to replace our humanness, that yeah. seems bad because then it's kind of wasting the thing that we have, right? We have this yeah. gift and this ability. And if we use something that gets in the way of that, of the, the way of gets in, the, you know, humans are social animals. We're, we're meant yeah. to be that. It seems like, you know, science and cognitive science and behavioral science has told us. So, so, uh, so yeah, uh, you know, technology for me isn't a, uh, a totally evil. What, what I would say is I feel like, you know, um, we came in right under the, uh, right, right, right before the big shift to technology. And so what, I appreciate about what um, the boy's mom and I did is we were uh, wary of technology and its seduction. Yeah. And yeah. so we felt like we needed to protect the boys from its seduction and allow them to develop more slow growing interests like reading, yeah. right? Reading develops arguably at a slower pace than an exciting video game. Yeah. Um, and so for them to develop love of story, love of narrative, appreciation for that, having the patience it takes to read a book, like yeah. you could sit down, my understanding, and you could have a, you know, a pretty comprehensive video game experience in 30 minutes, right? But reading a book takes a while and yeah. moves at a pace and action unfolds, I think more slowly often than a video game. So, so there's a certain sensibility one needs to have to appreciate that. Yeah. And uh, we, I feel very fortunate that a whole host of things allowed us to really the boys really had no access to their phones, like friends house. We weren't like, you know, tyrannical about it. Don't go near the Xbox. Um, but yeah. we didn't have it in our house. Yeah. Uh, if they went to a friend's house, they played, that was all good, but they yeah. really didn't have access to, you know, the rapid high velocity world of technology uh, until they were probably 14, 15. The, the rule was you get a cell phone at ninth grade and, uh, um, so I, we feel like that was really helpful because they had an understanding of the world, who they were, how they moved through the world before they had the crutch of uh, technology. Yeah. 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 I'll say, you know, I have three adult children and now I have the four grandchildren. It's right. very different parenting. And with the pandemic and them having to be on screens, it's created a whole nother level of addiction that we're yeah. trying to peel back the layers of that we were worried about before. Yeah. Um, but I also... I'm trying to be really curious <laughs> through the <laughs> lens of, you know, what's, what's, how does it serve them best today without losing the richness of all those pieces that you just identified that you were able to give to your kids. And, you know, the world is, is changing. And, and I think about that distraction piece. I also worry about their spines with their heads mm. down <laughs> or all of our spines. All of our spines. Yeah. yeah. Our vision. Um, and so to me, like, it's the only, this idea of cultivating this mindful way of being just allows us to be with all of it, but not let it suck us up too much, you know? And 
And back to the distraction piece and even the, some of the work that you're doing in the world now um, around some of our social issues. And I think about distraction in a way that gets us so caught up that I think sometimes it's hard for us to know what our truth is, say nothing about standing in it. You know, like we get caught up in the storylines and it's certainly like media fills, feeds into this. Um, and it's really hard, like even what you said you did as a parent, like you have to really make a conscious choice to go against the momentum that's sweeping us up, whatever generation that that is. And um, this perpetual state of self-distraction that we're in, in these like mass, what do they call these mass weapons? weapons of distraction, they're yeah. a gift, but at the same time, if not used well, you know, it can really cause more and more of those divides. And it's, I guess I'm gonna go back to the neuroscience of it. Like what's that developing in our brain? It's like the centers of reactivity, right? Mm -hmm. It's our posterior cingulate, con, you know, gyrus, it's our uh, amygdala. And so like not, it's exhausting us at so many levels. So when we come to things like social justice, racial justice, equity. I just think we're, are, we're exploding at so many levels physiologically. Like we've, we, you know, it's really hard for people to not react and not go down the rabbit hole, yeah. especially when you're in circumstances. And I totally will say right up front that I do not walk in many people's shoes. I just walk in my own and I, but I really try to hold space for understanding how we're moving and what's changing. Um, and I know some people I'll, I'll even say like the reactivity that you mentioned a, a single mom with three kids have, I have that more with these four children at this point in my life than I certainly had with my th three, three, um, when I, everything was a little more under whatever control I thought I had. Um, and so I, I understand how stress and, um, you know, things that come into your life unexpected and really rock your boat can put you in a state of not being the best version of yourself. Um, and you get distracted by many, by many thoughts and maybe not the real reality. So I don't know, when I think about leadership, when I think about moving change, I just wonder, um, you know, if there's a place for reframing some of what we've thought was the way to do things in the past, you know, and for building and allowing people the time to reflect, which I know not everybody has either, but you know, I've worked on that in the hospital, just like, okay, well, when you're walking down the hallway to your next patient, take a few deep breaths, feel your feet on the floor. Like there are simple things we can do. You don't have to sit on a yoga mat or, you know, have all this open space. You can sit on a subway if you need to, but if we don't start to cultivate a different way to train our brain and our attention, um, then we can't really listen to our heart or say, or actually make space to listen to other people's hearts too, and understand that maybe we're all just doing the best we can in that moment, you know? I, I do. I think, so a couple of things you said that stick out for me. First of all, is I think it's a sensibility, right? So it's a sensibility and a discipline that allows you to move from patient to patient, hospital room, the hospital room, and to stay um, deeply present, 
yeah. right? To, to, as you said, to breathe and to feel the floor beneath your feet. That's a, that's a discipline. It's, it's a way that you uh, think about things. There's a back in college. Uh, one of my favorite car- courses was taught by scanning Robert Coles. He was a super famous child psychologist. Uh, when you go back to, uh, he, I think he's actually a psychiatrist. Uh, when you go back to the famous picture of Ruby Bridges being uh, escorted by uh, the uh, military uh, into the school because she's integrating the school for her safety. Well, yeah. he actually did lots of interviewing. He knew Ruby Bridges. You know, he was this you know guy doing because he was. I feel like he's a child psychiatrist, but he taught a course at. Um, when I was in college, part of the core curriculum, you know, supposed to take these courses in the liberal arts. Um, and it was brilliant. It was called uh, Social, I'm not going to get the title right, but we, we read all these famous um, different uh, philosopher, poet, uh, literary people, like we uh, studied Walker Evans and James Agee. And uh, Walker, James Agee, I think, is a writer-poet. And Walker Evans has that famous uh, photo of the Dust Bowl woman. She's mm-hmm. sitting there and she's got a craggy face like everyone's seen this. And she just looks yeah. like she came off a hard day of work, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, this guy, but I was moving to this guy, uh, William Carlos Williams. And William Carlos Williams was a poet, but he was a doctor, a, um, a physician. And he was one of the, of the last generation of house call doctors and he lived in patterson new jersey which was a hard scrabble kind of working class community and he visited these homes and he had this thing this is a long story back to curiosity and presence Uh, (laughs) and so i remember reading him journaling and he had this thing where uh he would journal about his experience and he would say things i noticed today that i hadn't noticed before Right. And this, this yeah. sense of so because he'd be going to these homes, he'd be talking with people and he'd be experiencing the same community and perhaps the same family. And he would get his mind back to sensibility and discipline in a place to not be caught up in, OK, what's my next stop? And what was it this person had? And I remember they had this. So I'm going to tell them how to fix themselves and tell them to start eating right. And he would, he would just kind of breathe and allow what happened in that moment and to see the same family, but anew to try to put himself in a place to cease and say, I never noticed that they do this thing or that thing's hung on the wall or uh, the way they greet each other in the morning or something, right? That, that could actually change everything, right? It could be an opening. All of a sudden there's a dimension and a, and a possibility for who these people are, for who you are, for what the connection is that you couldn't have accessed when you were... Yeah. You know, going like that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to come back because you and I, when we took our walk, had something. And, and when I was talking about Boston and my experience, and then you were talking about um, uh, your experience with your grandkids and the mom who might be frustrated. Um, one of the things that, like something I uh, sit with and want to work on is the degree to which we'll have these, generally what I would say, uh, perhaps falls into a continuum of wellness, how we think about being well in our lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And pretty much that world and that path um, gets perceived as and often gets promulgated by middle and upper income white people, often Mm -hmm. white women. Mm -hmm. And it makes me sad 
that we've allowed ourselves to get to a place that these things that I think are pure, right? It looks like when you have the mom who drives the nice uh, SUV up to the wellness center in the well-heeled suburb and she goes to get her Zen on uh, uh, before she goes back perhaps, and don't mean to be too judgmental, to her consumerist lifestyle that she's doing her Zen yoga thing to kind of, as a, as, a, uh, as a little bit of a foil to other ways she's li- living her life that maybe aren't that satisfying, which leaves her unsatisfying. She's hoping that, that the Zen piece would do it when really maybe changing how you live in a mm-hmm. daily basis mm-hmm. rather than getting a shot of this thing. But, but that, as you and I discussed, so many of these ways of being like go back to indigenous people, like they started someplace. So it's almost like we allowed that culture and time to let white middle-class people hijack these ways of being that are, that began, I think, in, in more pure grounded ways. Like I always think about this, like when you deal with black, black urban folk now are like petrified of nature. Like you take, you take a city black person out in nature and they hear the sounds and it's like paranoid and think the bear is going to get them or the snake's going to get them or the tarantula is going to get them. And it's, it's interesting to me that like black, the black community and black folks and indigenous folks started with the land. Like Africa wasn't yeah. cities. Like black folks knew how to be in nature, understood the flora and fauna, knew what stuff was nourishing, what stuff was medicinal. Like we're really in touch with the land. And even here in the US, because of slavery, arguably black folks understood the land better than white folks because we toiled out there every day. Yeah. Urbanization and projecting what it means to be one way or another is there's a real nature deficit in the black community because black communities are often not particularly once you get out of the South, there's still Southern rural communities. But after that, the black experience, the overwhelmingly urban experience. So you live in these concrete jungles and you eat processed food and you live the rat race jungle life and you just completely remove from the kind of access that, you know, we here in uh, Vermont have and try mm-hmm. to take advantage of. So, so I kind of lament and rue the fact that um, the communities arguably that need these things most, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, nature walks, um, that, that, it, that it's seen as acting white when you do that. It's yeah. somehow you're doing something that isn't um, sort of uh, connected to and natural for you as a black person, as a Vietnamese person, as a you know, uh, Latino to be engaged in meditation and mindfulness and going for a walk um, because you're somehow doing what they do at Canyon Ranch. Instead yeah, of, you know. so I, I'm curious about that because I think of it, I mean, I, I was an athlete, I didn't wanna do yoga. You know, I didn't see it as yeah. anything that would serve me when I was younger. And it was stress in my life that brought me to mindfulness. I was like, okay, I got to figure my way out of this. Okay, I saw this book full catastrophe living. I read it. I practiced John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness. And then I felt that connection, which is probably more of a spiritual connection than anything else. That's what I think about with nature. That's what I think about any of these practices I bring. It reminds me of who I am at a soul's level. And so I'm just curious, I understand what you're saying and thanks for sharing that perspective. It's definitely one I don't have, um, but understand that makes sense. At the same time, I'm like curious and I, I think I shared with you, I do global health work in Africa and even 
the black men there said to me, why, why do you guys all practice yoga? You know, and they're, they just didn't understand it, but they were curious. One of them now practices and, um, and what is it do you think that creates them not seeing it as something that might be relevant to them or that it's even, I mean, have we as white people just turned them off to it, you know, or, um, yeah. Why don't yeah. they like want to just give it a try? Exactly. So I think that um, there'd been a, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not an expert. These are just, you know, yeah. you, I'm sure you appreciate opinions, but, yeah. but I think there has been something that has emerged over a period of time, um, say, uh, you know, uh, pretty much the 20th century and industrialization, right. And, and, um, um, cities and kind of more sophisticated and complex, more, more than sophisticated, complex ways of living as humans and things moved away. So I was going to say, let's just say the contemplative life and the idea that it's good for humans to sit with your thoughts, maybe write those thoughts down, maybe share those thoughts in speech. Well, in a time where that's all that was available to you, late 19th, early 20th century, if you had access to education, and even if not, I would say that, um, that there was much more appreciation um, because you couldn't go to the movies, you couldn't be on your computer, you sat with people, right? And there was contemplation was part of life, whether we read uh, Thoreau and Emerson mm -hmm. or Frederick Douglass and Du Bois, both the black men in a, in a racist, you know, uh, still slaveholding world and white men, but if you had access to education, that's what you did. You corresponded, you wrote letters, you wrote your ideas down, you spoke some time, uh, and you, you, you had time to gather those thoughts and, and appreciate it. And the contemplative life was something that was good for humans, right? And there was yeah. access, it was, so, so, so it's there, right? That way of being, but something about our modern crazy life has done it. And, and so I think it's become fetishized and commodified. And because, and that, and those things tied up with capital, and to the degree that white folks control capital pretty much, that's the problem, is that those things should be accessible. They shouldn't be about capital. But I would say in America, more wealthy white folks are into wellness and eat well and uh, move their body and meditate and do all these things than do poor people of color. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes this thing that exists in that sphere, right? Because it becomes a commodity. It becomes something that uh, right, is, is, is something you do when you have money and you mm -hmm. have the time to do it. Um, mm -hmm. But what, I'm, what I would say, it doesn't take away. It's just been, unfortunately, it, it takes those things and compromises them, but it doesn't, it doesn't eliminate the fact that they're, they're just good in and of themselves. And my dad's a perfect example. My dad is not your, your, you know, your uh, typical, uh, you know, Zen uh, following mindful person as an 83 year old uh, black man who grew up the hard way, who's a Marine, but yet like you, he found his way to it. And because it is valuable, he could see the value. Once he started practicing, his life changed and it ended up being a tool for him to manage on he's 83, but he had a real tough upbringing and a tough, you know, I share with you, tough parental situation, mm -hmm. tough thing with, you know, my little brother, who's his half brother and the, you know, the trauma in his family. And, and he just realized he feels more regulated, 
more present, more able to have phenomena come at him and to look at it as just that Mm -hmm. and not have it be triggering. Being like, oh, this person has now moved into an area of conversation and I can look at it and see that's an interesting thought they're having. Where at another point, it would be totally triggering and they'd be off and running. You Mm -hmm. see it as this thing that exists outside of you yeah. And it's happening. It's happening to you, but you have a choice in how you respond, right? Yeah. So, well, so, so my, my thing is, so, so back to your question, I think that's part of it is that uh, our worlds are so removed. And I, and I think there's, there are many who are, but I think these ways of being, I would argue that um, there's some, not an insignificant number of white people who are very judgmental of me, but I would argue are using those things, I don't know, improperly, but they're, the reason they're seeking it uh, is not, I would argue, the, the reason why those things exist and their best use, right? Yeah. And, and once again, from the example, I spent a lot of my time in that world. I'm in this kind of like, I live between worlds because of my education and some of my job things. Like I spend a lot of time around wealthy white people and I watch and see what happens. Um, and you, know, you can get caught up in the lifestyle and you're not even like, you know, other parts of this conversation talk about, they don't even know if the thing you're doing is satisfying anymore. It's just what they do. Yeah. Like they go to the country club. They don't say, do I actually like the country club? I don't even like golf. Yeah. I don't like all, you know, I, I don't even yeah. like this, but you know, you can get to a point where it wouldn't even occur to you to question it. Cause that's what you do. People like, of course I would drive this car. Yeah. When you say like, I don't like these cars. This isn't the yeah. kind of car I want to drive. I don't want yeah. a 30 foot long boat that gets eight miles to a gallon, that's all tricked out and cost me $80,000, but my neighbor has it and my neighbor's neighbor has it. And I've told myself, that's the only way I can get the kids to soccer practice. So I drive this big old thing. And like one day, if you stop, you'd be like, I don't even like these cars. This is my third one, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You got to feel, you got to feel it first to make the change. And then, um, yeah. So you're kind of making me think about a lot of things. One is um, how we could possibly deconstruct that because I feel like, you know, I studied bhakti yoga and that's just was brought to us by an Indian who felt like I need to bring this to the West to save these poor souls, you know? And he went to New York City to the roughest villages. I mean, how did it permeate to where it is today? You know, why didn't the seeds get planted and held there? Um, because it is to me, it's such a gift to me. It's how I survived a really rocky period of my life. And now I'm like, you know, I do it. So I don't yell at my kids every day. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so that all those things, all those things that I feel like if we're going to make sustainable yeah. change, you know, we have to, we have to take the, the people on the higher end of the white spectrum that are, are doing their things mindlessly and the people that are struggling at the the lower ends and how do we create space for, um, you know, because for us getting back to like what's in here, because it's our body wisdom that really will carry us through. I, I I think part of one of my points with digging with you a little bit about your upbringing and why you do what you do is because I do think some people come into this world with a karmic and a dharmic, um, well, we all come in with an intentional plan. I think, you know, we're all, we're all here for a reason and, you know, it's no mistake and there's something you're supposed to be doing and you need to figure out what that is. And so no matter where you sit on the spectrum of 
people were talking about today, um, I still hold hope for everyone to have the opportunity to have that journey. You know, I'm just yeah. incredibly curious of <laughs> how to break down some of these barriers and give people access to tools and uh, ancient wisdom is what it is. Um, yes, right, yeah. exactly. That's right. what it is. I mean, yoga is not about the asana practice or the outfits. It's about right. the deep wisdom that's in it that guides us and helps us remember who we are and the earth that we came from and what we're, we're here to do as a light being. And so, you know, everyone and everyone has their way. Yoga is not the only way. Obviously, a lot of people get it through a lot of different yep. lenses. Um, but I do understand the perception of where yoga has gone. Um, but I also see in our local community in Burlington, some really powerful coming together on the yoga mat. And there aren't a lot of people of color in the classes I go to or teach. Absolutely. And, but there are a couple and they are bringing the difficult issues to the mat. Yeah. And so. Have you, have you run into Katie Pescucci of Sangha Yoga Studios? Katie? Yeah, her name's Caitlin Pescucci and she runs uh, Sangha and uh, Sangha is currently on Pine Street right behind yeah. North Star Cyclery and then another yeah. one on North Winooski. Yeah. But uh, I do but know I, of her. I yeah. Don't, yeah. She's, is she doing some meaningful work in this way? She is, I think. And what I, so she's a, a friend and she worked in my offset Champlain. And what I would say, what, what I think is interesting about Katie, we talk about this all the time is I think she comes from working class uh, Massachusetts roots and she came to, um, to Champlain and she's just really incredibly down to earth. Like one of the least pretentious people you ever meet. Um, and uh, she she studied like event planning and management and she got out of college and, you know, she had to work and make a living. And I think she went to work at the Essex Resort doing that stuff. And in college, she wasn't, uh, you know, yogini at all and didn't, you know, do it. She was just but something uh, opened her to yoga and then she started moving down the path and she decided that she had a vision for a different kind of yoga studio and practice. And she just went for it. I mean, just, yeah. you know, big cojones, like it's a big switch. Yeah. And uh, I would say that I find her studio because of who she is, uh, it's younger. It's a little more playful. It, it takes itself less serious in a good way. Um, I think it's more accessible. I think she tries to build in ways to make it more inclusive. Yeah. It's not perfect, but it's very much not. It's not your Shelburne, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, soccer mom set up. And I'm being very simplistic and I don't yeah. mean to degrade, but there are these tropes, right? And these, uh, these yeah. things, so. And I think um, Laughing River's doing the same type of work and I am familiar with that. Maybe I should invite her on the podcast. I'd like to talk oh, to you her Oh, you absolutely bit. should. She would be yeah. very, uh, I highly recommend, I can connect you with her and, and yeah. I think she'd be great. That would be great. Cause it is a powerful, it's just a tool we have, like one sure. of our many tools. And I certainly also want to put out, like even the title of this podcast, Zen Mama, it's not that I think I'm Zen, it's that I aspire to be, right. sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and in contrast to the addiction that's come into my life, that's sort of where that sits. And I really, just like I, I have this episode called Everyday Gurus, it's not to dishonor the real gurus out there that we hold in high spiritual light or the Zen masters, you know, and I, I guess I also want to speak to that and make that clear. 
yeah. it is great humble humbleness that I use those titles even um, right. because I know the greatness of it and I think we all have that potential but it is a journey mine included <laughs> and I would say too uh, Meredith when someone encounters you um, I think they experience the humility and the journey part of it and uh, don't uh, I don't think people experience you as a pretender to the throne or a poser or trying to present yourself as anything other than you are, but a mm -hmm. student who's trying to walk the path and open to mm -hmm. learning at every point and eager to share for what it's worth humbly um, mm -hmm. anything that you have learned that might be of value. That's that's what I experienced. So thank you, and yeah. and I think that's the whole premise of the podcast is we all do have that light in us. Some some people is getting a little dim, and it's like yeah. how can we help ignite that light? Um, so we can share and have these meaningful conversations that are really the realness of who we are in this human journey. It's also what can feel kind of yummy about it and not so hard and edgy, which yeah. we have plenty of too. But I, I think they can exist together, you know, just like grief and gratitude. Um, it can actually open us, our hearts wide open if we allow that to be. Yeah. yeah. It's all in what we choose, right? It's the power of choice. It as is. As we talked you know, about a little bit earlier. Choice is very powerful. And, you know, I think it's hard, but even, even when your choices are constrained, you still have choice, right? Whether you're choosing out of three things or 300, it's a choice. Yeah. Right. And that's that um, idea of like, you know, I've, I think I talked to you about trying to empower patients, even about their health care, so they don't come yeah. in and feel like they're part of the system. And once they walk through that door, they're like, okay, you tell me what to do and I have to do it. It's like, how can you come in with a tool or tools in your toolbox to be able to guide that experience for yourself? And, and even if we talk about this more globally and more broadly around the work that that you do out in the community, it's like, how do we empower people to know they have that power of choice and that they can be a part of moving change, um, you know, and, and to see how they're deflecting that possibility, you know, with reactivity at times and judgment, you know, it's, um, I know it's a lot of work to move and my hat's off to you, like incredibly for being part of that. As I said to you, I said, well, I'm kind of listening and you were respectful of that. You said, well, that's wise. But at the same time, unless we start talking about it and have some action, then we're not going to move that. Yeah. I know you're right. It's, you know, I had a experience, uh, you know, now moving into kind of the part of my life that deals with race and race issues of uh, I was so at the Y, we created something called the Anti-Racism Council, and it's uh, internal for why. Uh, staff to come together and talk about uh, what does it mean to be anti-racist as an individual? What does it mean to uh, try to uh, create a organization that promotes and supports anti-racism? Uh, what that looks like internally, how much of that is how we turn it on ourselves, how much of that is an external focus? Um, and someone uh, presented an article and it was uh, an article written by a black uh, woman and her thing was like, how come when we talk about race, it always comes down to white folks' needs. What do white people need? I need, mm. I need to not feel fearful. I need to not feel like afraid in this conversation. I need to not feel uh, guilty for my whiteness, you know, um, and, and criticizing and saying, you know, after 400 years, it just doesn't seem right that we come to the meeting and it's about your needs in this moment. Like George Floyd is the one who's dead. Not quite sure why we're talking about your needs. Mm. But I would say that uh, that brings me back to 
the problem is, so when I'm there, I say, well, uh, if we're going to reach out and if we want to connect, I think we need to be honest about what it is we're doing and call it what it is. I said, for me, a conversation is just that. So if you're going to call it a conversation, then I think you create space for whoever shows up to show up however they do respectfully mm-hmm. and honestly and genuinely. But if that person says, you know, I'm really struggling with this and I feel like I try to live well and be thoughtful and, but I carry this guilt. That's about what's happening, you know, beyond me. And if, if it ends up being a therapy session for that white person, so be it. That's what they needed from the conversation. I don't, I don't think you can call the conversation and shut it down to that and be critical. Now, if you want to say, this is a place where we're going to, um, prioritize black feelings and black needs and you can come, but this isn't about you. It's not about your needs. It's not a conversation per se, right? Mm -hmm. Then call what it is and people come. But when you call a conversation and then you beat up for people because they're just working through it the best they can, like this, this stuff is hard. That's why we're still struggling with it. Like, you know, no one has the answer. It's too, we've gotten too far down the road. It's so intricate and, and embedded that, that like, I despair as a, as a optimistic guy, but I despair how we'll work our way out of this thing. Cause we've just gotten so twisted in a ball. It's like that. It's like that knot, you know, it's like the knot that's just impossible. It's been knotted five yeah. times and the pieces are, they're so tiny. You can't get your fingernail. You got to get something in there and yeah. you don't, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's wound up. Like we've gotten so caught in the, in all the yarn that we forget what's at the center of it almost. Right. Yeah, that's right. I heard this guy actually, Byron Davis, have you heard of him? Yeah, I don't know him well, but I know the name, yeah. And he talked about um, a problem is well-defined. I mean, when we can well-define a problem, then we're on the way to the solution. But until we can really identify it and actually voice it, like actually, like sometimes we can be overwhelmed, like the ball, right? Because of, you know, because of the complexity of it, right? But it, this idea of distilling it to this one clear, or at least maybe even five clear points, yeah. right? And then, and, and instead of being overwhelmed, realize that that's such an opportunity for us to be able to then, you know, voice it and, and then the solution, it becomes a possibility. I don't know, what, what are your th- feelings on that philosophy? Well, well, I think I think that if I'm catching right, I think that part of our problem is right that the the problem is horribly ill-defined and way oversimplified. I you know I do it's probably a limited metaphor, but I compare racism uh, to cancer. In that, um, I would say that maybe racism is like uh, metastatic cancer that began as one form of irregular mm-hmm. cell growth mm-hmm. and then just metastasized and morphed into all these other things, and now. It's all over the body in so many different ways that the medical professor just kind of puts their hands up and saying, we're just going to keep you comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and racism mm-hmm. is kind of like that. It's, it's, it's metastasized. It was something more direct, but now it's so all over the place, but most, but we don't understand it as such. I think we, we talk about it in very simplistic ways as if it's as simple as white people are bad and, and black people are victims and let's just stop white people from being bad. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes we kind of make it that simple. It's so far from being that simple. Yeah. Um, but we, we address it, uh, particularly through, understandably, the needs of Black people. 
and BIPOC folks. And those needs are real, right? They're the trauma, like there's a need. But unfortunately, um, it, we end up not getting to the place we need to get to because when we do oversimplify it, we, I think, take away a lot of potential tools, right? So if you, like, if you just think that, you know, there was a time where uh, there's a piece of faulty tissue and we'll just cut out the tissue and we'll be fine. Like we deal with cancer in a more sophisticated way than that. And we still come up short. Cancer is still winning. Yeah. Right? Racism is still winning. Cancer is still winning. Cancer is winning less today than it was in 1950, but it's still winning. And we, we approach it with a more holistic understanding, all these things. So, so, I, so that's what I think. I don't think we look at race and racism today in that much more sophisticated way than we did in 1960. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot more sophisticated. We had a black president. I'm standing here. I'm a black CEO and I went to Harvard and Columbia. That is not, you know, and it's not horribly uncommon for that to happen today Mm -hmm. while there are black men getting shot. Both things are happening, but it's not like out of the question, right? You know, this year, there's a lot of black people graduating from Ivy League colleges, which just complicates it. Doesn't mean someone might hear me and say like, so you're saying it's over? No, I'm not saying it's over. I'm just saying it's complex. Yeah. It's gotten, you know, 1960 was a little more clear. It was a little more one-sided. It's now it's just, it's complex. And therefore- Um, you know, we got to at least start back to defining the problem by respecting its complexity and trying to come at it with a set of approaches that are commensurate with its complexity. Yeah. And there's not the, (laughs) unlike the cancer analogy with, we'll just keep you comfortable. There's so much discomfort right now. And that's another thing that I think is a good outcome is that everyone's uncomfortable about it. Not just the people yeah, that are. I wish I, I don't. I, I I hope everyone's uncomfortable about it. I think there's a decent amount of discomfort. Um, I don't know. Like, forty-seven percent of people voted for Trump. I don't yeah, know if they're all uncomfortable. That's a lot of Americans. So I don't know if. Well, I, I do. I mean, could we say they're uncomfortable and they're being reactive to that? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So. So. Right. So. Uncomfortable for different reasons, but everyone's yeah. uncomfortable. No yeah. one likes the status quo. Everyone thinks right. the status quo is bad, maybe for different reasons. Right. Yes. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. No one's like, this is great. Right. Very few right. Okay. And, and that's well, that's why I feel like it's moving more than yeah. it has in the past. And okay. I know I've had difficult conversations with friends that I've been friends with for years that again the difference is clear, but at least we're having the conversations. Um, which I have to believe is at least a step in the right direction, you know? And I feel like so, I do feel like so much of it is rooted in fear. And when I, when I think of, I mean, I'm not, uh, actually, I'm not like talking, like I have any solutions here. Just (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to get off Mary. I'm going to say, I talked to Mary Studio last Friday. She (laughs) says she has the answers. I'm not sure where she got them from. And it seems a little bit presumptuous to me, but she told me she had the answers. (laughs) It's just that idea. And I know so many people are so much further down the path that if I, if I talk too much about this, they'll be like, yeah, we've already talked about that. But this, the idea of reframing even fear and, you know, like um, in, in the role that it's played and that if, you know, anyway, if we could just think about it in a different way and the energy that's behind that can be, you know, is the same as excitement. And um, yeah. I don't know, even saying that feels like I'm sort of dishonoring the, um, the struggle that some people have. And, and again, just back to that idea of really not understanding. And I know that like when we talk about safety and, you know, 
what you've developed, uh, what did you call it again that you've developed at the Y? In terms of, oh, the Anti-Racist Council. Yeah, but this idea that like police is the only way to have safety in a community and that it yeah. has to, like until we understand how people live, how they eat, how they house, we can't really address the safety issue. And I, I heard a few, someplace um, they had, and I'm sure several places have done this, but you know, they've started a more community-based um, approach to safety. You know, when did we begin to think that police was the only way to keep a community safe? Right. right, which is probably an understatement. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Which is some of the work that's maybe happening in Burlington. Well, I hope so. I mean, for the complexity, what I learned is, so we, we question whether um, the police are the only way to keep us safe. And we, because of trauma and hurt and betrayal and ongoing things that we can watch on the six o'clock news, in that formulation, particularly those, in my experience, is what I observe, who are most hurt and betrayed, they eliminate the possibility that cops agree with them. And it is the case that cops agree that they're not the only way to keep up communities safe. And the, the tools and the methods and the things they do are undesirable. A community would be better if they didn't have to do what they have to do. And cops yeah. believe that. It's like going back to the medical profession. The medical profession who deals with that part of the population for a whole host of reasons are either making bad choices or, or have lives that make it hard for them to have any other choices, but they're there and they're dealing with hypertension and diabetes and all these things that ultimately are preventable. They don't want to be doing that. Like those, those there are yeah. many in that profession who say, I wish I didn't have this much business. I yeah. don't want to see another person die because their insulin wasn't regulated. They kept eating those sweets. They have the high cholesterol, they kept eating the fatty foods, like the medical threshold, they do it because it's a job someone needs to do, but they don't, they don't revel in the fact that that's what they need to do. Well, there's no shortage of cops who feel the same way. They don't like pulling a gun on someone. Yeah. That's not like, they don't get up saying, I hope that in the today, someone does something that makes me have to pull my gun on them. There's a good number who don't want to do that. Yeah. So, so the lack of complexity is when we act as if they are the problem. And we put the kind of focus we are when, as you say, it's more comprehensive. It's the, it's the ecosystem in a community that leaves citizens feeling like they have no choice or in such a bad place that they make the kind of decisions that then trigger the cops showing up. Yeah. So, so yeah. the cops are, are implicated, they're part of it, but they're not the whole reason, nor would I say they're the source, right? Yeah. Homelessness yeah. and food insecurity. And there's a lot of things that mm -hmm. I might argue are more powerful because since you and I have food and, you know, housing, like I haven't been arrested. Yeah. I don't yeah. think that's a, I don't think that's a mystery. I don't think that's like an accident. Yeah. I've never been arrested. I don't plan to get arrested. And lots of people well, who have resources in their life, black and white like me. And, you know, as a black man, certainly I would be prone to some other things, but um, you know, I, I, I point out, cause I think statistics, even when they don't tell us what we want to say is that when we go down the list of Philando Castile, Mike Brown, George Floyd, none of them are middle-class educated black males, yeah. which yeah. doesn't mean we're insulated, but that's just a fact. I haven't seen a single one of these horrible uh, happenings that someone was like, they drove up an Acura and they were a, a doctor, yeah, a lawyer, right, this right. person, and they got shot. It just hasn't happened, Yeah, right? Which doesn't yeah. get rid of the race issue, but there is something going on if you have the things in your life that generally support you to live a certain way, yeah. you have a different set of actions and yeah. outcomes.
I mean, I guess I'm jumping to addiction right now because that's what I can relate to the most is probably that more raw gritty part of what I have seen in my life with my daughter. Like yep. she, she's making a choice right now to live, uh, you know, sort of. I mean, she stepped into that arena of addiction choice, but, right, but and now she's in the grips of it. So she puts herself in those situations where guns come out in Burlington, you mm. know? And so I understand how that feeds into the position that the police are in, because I know when an addict is in use, there's no logic happening there. There's no good choices. And it, and it does inhibit the safety of our community, you know? And yeah. so until, I mean, I guess I can identify it with until the complexity of that issue, and, but until we begin to have better solutions or help, I mean, it's a huge problem. Again, I, that's what I get all balled up in a knot about <laughs> when yeah. I start to peel and unravel that. And just my journey with her through this and even someone that has resources, but still, you know, it's complex, yeah. you know, all the different things that come into it, shame, vulnerability, feeling like you need to be part of that community. It's the only place you belong, you know, which right. is probably the mentality of many people that come up through that. Right. Yeah. I, think, I think you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't have any answers, but me and I would love to hold space for conversation and understanding of all those as I do even with her, you know, but sure. what I have learned is no matter how much space you hold, how much room for understanding, how many potential solutions you might present, how many mentors might hold out their hand, at the end of the day, we all have to do the work. Like, That's right. You, you no have one can do to, it for us. No yeah. one can do it for you. You know, you can box yourself in a corner and think you belong. And I'm, I'm sorry. And my heart goes out to you because I can say this as if I'm speaking to my daughter, not to anyone that might be offended by this, but to say, you still have to choose to be the best version of yourself, even if it's the freaking messiest version you could possibly imagine. At least if you're doing the best you can, we'll all assume you're doing the best you can. I like to assume everyone's doing the best they can. It lets me off the hook of being pissed off, yeah. <laughs> you know, sure. but I do, I, I, I have incredible empathy and understanding and curiosity, but I, this, I also feel like we are all in charge of our own destiny, you know, right. and we can either rise up to this and choose to do it differently or to hold space in a different way or to get a different car or to walk to work or whatever, you know, or we can choose on the path we're on and not expect things to change at all. That's, it's just that simple. And, you know, if we, if we eliminate the personal accountability responsibility part while we're doing the other things, while we're showing compassion and empathy and, yes. and lifting each you other up and fiercely compassion and, lift, and kind, right. Right. But all, but personal accountability is at the core and, it, and it's invite. It's always there. Yeah. 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 Well, hey, Mary, see, I think you and I could go on for days. I know. Sorry. And uh, I see you moving around. And, and I love another. Yeah, this, I, I, this is great. I enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I thank you. I'm like so honored to be able to have this conversation with you. And, Pleasure. you know, you're a light. Well, thank and you. I thank you for that. And uh, let's keep spreading it. And. Okay, so um, we just we wrapped up this conversation about a week ago or so. And then I realized there was a couple things I really wanted to hear from Kyle that I didn't get a chance to ask him. Um, as this show really talks a lot about resiliency, and you clearly are on a path of uh, a warrior's path, I feel like. 
And I just am curious, like, how do you stay resilient in your life um, to keep balance, to manage the issues that are important to you in both family and work and the world? Are there some things, practices you do every day? Uh, no, Marion. I've, I've, well, not consciously, formally, um, and uh, methodically, right? So um, I think uh, what happened is that it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition in that one of my responses to, I believe this is, uh, this is me, this is a conjecture, uh, right? So I'm not sure, but I think that one of my responses to my parents' divorce, my parents divorced uh, when I was about 12 and, you know, some therapy and other things caused me to uh, dig a little deeper into that time than, um, than I did then, nor you know, most of the time after that, until I started partaking in therapy, which is after 50. So in the last five years, so I say okay. after 50, I did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and, and part of it was probably going through my own divorce and mm-hmm. thinking about my children, uh, my sons and, and the, the m- more resources and more conversation for them than I remember happening for me. I, I certainly know therapy. No one in my family talked about therapy. No one did therapy when I was growing up. Sure. Um, and we probably had a conversation, but I can't remember. I can't remember sitting down with my parents and them talking about what was happening and mm-hmm. talking about how they still loved us and you know stuff like that. It may have happened. It, it may not have, I'm not sure, but they clearly right. did. And, and as divorces go, uh, you know, my dad maintained access to our household, the house we lived in with my mom, which is where we had all lived together. And he came to everything. He, you know, they, they still did things together, um, mm-hmm. you know, for the kids. So uh, that was much better than many. But, but what happened was I, um, you know, so we we're in this suburban town and, you know, it made me realize that, that in, in some ways I was very embraced by the town. Uh, and I had a, an experience of being a popular kid who was a good student and a, and a good athlete. And I was a captain of this and the president of that. But there was also a loneliness. And it, it was, you know, it was 1970s America. Right. So race was an issue. And so there yeah. was this loneliness. And what came out of it was an unbelievable sense of self-sufficiency. Like mm. I just decided that uh, I'd be able to keep my own counsel. And, I, and, and it, is a, it is one of my highest principles, problematically somewhat, sometimes. Mm-hmm. But it's like, Kyle will take care of Kyle. So self-soothing and, and just being with myself, even though I'm a raging extrovert, I'm also very comfortable being alone uh, and um, it doesn't make me anxious. You know, I know uh, people interesting, my ex-wife, who's an incredible introvert. She does not like to be alone. Uh, mm. She likes small groups, but she mm. would prefer to have someone than to be completely alone. Um, whereas I'm equally uh, comfortable in a hundred people, you know, room and <laughs> work in the room and yeah. just me walking a trail and uh, yeah. both of them are satisfying. So, so I think that helps is that, um, uh, that I uh, have this sense that uh, I'm okay and I want support and I want love and I want those things out there, but I've built up this edifice to take care of myself. Mm. Um, and the nice thing is the, the external is there. So I never have to rely too heavily, you know, right. because, um, I have the good fortune of affirmation and, and relationships and external love, but I've got my headspace and my psychologically I'm set up to, uh, I think, kind of take care of myself. Yeah. So, you know, it sounds uh, like a lot of people I come across and we're challenged to be able to come into ourselves, right? Yeah. 
And so I think what I'm hearing you say is you've always sort of had access to that and maintained that access. Yes, I think that's and, right. And then listened. Right. Right. Yes. And then guided both by your internal wisdom and then these powerful mentors that you've talked about that you have in your, have had in your life. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. it's funny. You just, I think you're, you're helping uncover some stuff just with the questions, Mary. And I would say that part of, I probably learned early, you know, sort of like the lesson of, um, you know, you have to ideally in life that, that like the work is to, to love yourself, to be able to forgive yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think this weird, um, I had this weird, uh, feels weird to me, or maybe ironic dual thing where ostensibly in my town, I was kind of everybody's all American, but with the limitations of race. Right. And so right. fairly progressive, but so occasionally I would run up against it. Like, you know, I was dating, you know, I did actually more than one woman whose parents knew who I was, they knew. And, and I would argue that they probably would want their daughter to date someone who had my resume, except for the fact that I was black, mm. right? And that was an issue for those families, mm. right? And so there were girls who had run-ins, but, and it was really difficult for the girls because their parents had probably presented a progressive front that got called yeah. into question when they were yeah. dating, particularly yeah. at, you know, 17, you know, junior, senior high school where kids are sexually active, right? It's yeah. not like we talked with parents, but but the knowledge that their daughter could be sexually active and sexually yeah. active with this person who they might have known. They probably knew me and cheered for me and thought Kyle's the greatest until I was dating their daughter. Mm. Right. And so that sense that that knowing that, um, you know, I could look at other models and some of this is caught up in other problematic stuff about high school. Right. That there are popular kids and unpopular kids and all that sure. stuff. So, you know, later, sure. but in the moment you know, knowing that, that in one way I occupied a particular position that was high, uh, high currency, right. In the, in the, right, right. In the um, and, but in other ways there were limitations on that because yeah. of race. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that as I picked that apart, I think that I took the kind of attention and apparent, uh, um, support even adulation at times that I received with a grain of salt mm. right and 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 mm -hmm. I knew that like you got to be good with you Kyle mm -hmm. um and that's that comes from I think you know the black community and and how certainly my parents my parents generation and their parents what the community would say about how to be a black person moving through a white world right and yeah about trust of white people and how much stead you put in white people's opinions and all that kind of stuff so yeah. So I think I always, you know, had, or not always, but I developed a strong sense of self independent of the, how it gets projected onto me. Yeah. You know, what the, how the world reads me. Yeah. And that's, that's hard. I mean, I think back to that age for myself, even, and you are, we are vulnerable, like even, and I was a student athlete too, and had lots of positive things, but underneath it all, we're still pretty insecure and right. so I can imagine, you know, and there's a couple of ways we always have this power of choice. And even at that young age, I guess the integrity of who you are as a human being chose to dig deeper on finding your own self-value, right? To not, to, to see race yeah. for what it was, how it was playing out in your life, but not to allow it to shut you down as a human being. And yeah, yeah. So that's a pretty powerful, again, it makes me think like, 
that's beautiful. And we, we can look at your life and, and understand that and then maybe understand why other people are more challenged in, in that way to stay yeah. resilient despite all of that. But well, that's really- me, I think, I think I've always, or not always, I think, you know, the blues, the, the music and the, the sensibility, the blues, mm. um, I, I feel like that perhaps it's being part of the black community, but I, I have a embrace of the idea that life involves joy and sorrow and and i've always had a comfort with melancholy and being sorrowful like when when i'm in that kind of place i remember uh you know um in the last couple years post-divorce and some relationships i had a relationship that was very intense and it was intense emotionally and uh when when i broke up with that person um i had a sadness like uh that was that was kind of new you know, mm, um, mm. that sadness. And, uh, um, but I, but I didn't, but it didn't, I don't know, scare me is the right word. I was just kind of, I was able to kind of, I don't know if lean into it, but I just accepted it as mm. uh, appropriate, like something that was it belonged. Know, important to me had, yeah. had ended and there's grief and mm-hmm. that's as it should be, you know, and uh, like I was comfortable with it, even though it was really hard. Yeah. Uh, I accepted is that's when you when you give of yourself that's what happens you know yeah and and that that's a and, and I felt in the end that's a that's a reasonable price because it was something that was really good and, yeah um so so I think I when, you know, back to your question of resilience I think that part of the resilience is um that ability uh and desire to embrace joy and sorrow in life and therefore I, I don't feel devastated when when I'm down or when something sad happens um, I see it as uh, part of the flow of life and not something that's, you know, game stopper. Oh my God, how will I get through this? Um, that's, um, yeah. Yeah. That's so rich. I think you've just said a whole lot right there about, <laughs> about <laughs> sort of when, when we step in and lean back, you know, like push back and when we just open up and accept and try right. to flow with it. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. That's yeah. really that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that and just being really generous with yeah. all that you've shared. I appreciate it. And I know um, the people listening will also. Yeah. Thank you. Do, lastly, I will say, cause I think you, um, I think that I've had the good fortune that part of also is like being in my body. I like being physical. So yes. resiliency for me is exercise or just yes. moving my body. Right. I, I've been able, I, and I, you know, I just had a hip replacement as you know, yeah. and so, that was the first thing that slowed me down. I mean, my body has served me incredibly well mm. uh, in terms of doing the things I ask it to do, skiing mm-hmm. and hiking and biking. And, and so, and those things give me a lot of pleasure and a lot of uh, sustenance. So yeah. uh, being in my body, exercising my body, feeling my body, working my body is, is definitely a uh, resiliency tool for me. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Cause even I was out on my bike this morning actually, and I was realizing part of the reason, cause right now I'm sort of pushing my edge with my training and I'm like, mm. why am I doing this? Well, part of it is it does bring me back into my body. Right. And you know, that might be, if you've had that in your life forever, um, it's probably been a tool that's just been happening, you know? Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So that's beautiful thing. Thanks for sharing that. I do think it's an incredible <laughs> tool for us to move our bodies in m- right. many ways, but, right. um, And the other thing, like, I guess, as we wrap up, like you've shared so much, but if you were to share sort of like one little nugget of wisdom around um, your journey and, you know, what sort of kept you in your authenticity and truth, right? Kept you on your path 
in the way that you want to show up in the world, like a uh, little or, or anything really, but that's what I'm sort of thinking about. Like what wisdom has kept you um, moving through the world in the way that you want to. Right from here. First, when you, when you began the question, I was like, Oh, this is a big one. I was like, what's, what's that thing? You know, and it felt a little yeah. daunting, but then I remembered, I think it's been identified. And I would say uh, the single thing that I really appreciate in others um, and uh, which I try to cultivate. And I think it's just uh, sustaining is curiosity. Mm. Right? When uh, maintaining a sense of curiosity and the ability to effectively be struck with awe and to have, mm. and, and not, it doesn't have to be something uh, major, right? So you're, you're walking along the trail and you just happen to capture, you happen to, you know, see a frog hopping on the side, right? Or maybe you were lucky enough to catch a praying mantis or, you know, or, or, you know, this time of year, a little bit earlier, you were walking and you saw a particular, you know, you saw the fiddleheads unfurling, mm -hmm. right? And you just stop and you just allow yourself to be awestruck at nature, at beauty, at phenomena, Mm. and uh that you you know you move through the world i'm a huge fan of uh that book a while ago robert fulgham i think's his name mm -hmm. but everything i need to know i learned in kindergarten yeah and so uh if you can walk through the world with a four or five year old's eyes and mm. curiosity forever like not only at four or five but at 55 right i think that's pretty important because the world is an amazing place people are amazing uh nature's amazing um uh, there's so many amazing things. Um, and if you approach it with curiosity, even, you know, I, I lost this a little bit. Like if I had been a little more, if I allowed my curiosity self to be more prominent in my police, my policing engagement, it would have worked out better. I, I don't know mm -hmm. if it's true that I got, I don't know if I got, uh, I did get a little, I allowed myself to get a little bit, um, uh, jaded in that. Right. And, uh, cynical at the way some of the conversations uh played out and 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 i i, I was complicit right i was in those conversations and i could have showed up differently <clears throat> and i um uh yeah i just got i think jaded for lack of better word mm -hmm. if i had been more curious about why people were showing up the way they were mm -hmm. and and why the conversations were going the way they were i think i could have uh i might have shown up differently and approached things in a little mm. different and better way from my perspective. Mm. So, so my answer is curiosity. If you stay curious, so I think there's yeah. humility and curiosity, right? Because perhaps the, uh, the alternative is being jaded or being a know-it-all. Like you don't have to be curious about anything because you know everything. Right. And, uh, so, so I think, yeah, curiosity and humility go hand in hand. Like humility yeah. is a really important thing. Yeah. A student of life. Yeah. And ah, exactly. like that just touches my heart. Like, thank you for sharing that piece because I do think it's incredibly powerful and, just the way you, you spoke it, I think. Uh, and it was really beautiful. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Well, you yeah, I do feel like you're such a, a gift to this world and uh, to our community. And I just, I know you're working still, you're back at the Y, but you're working on, you know, equity, diversity, and inclusion <clears throat> around race and other you know, all equities <laughs> yeah. and trying to build healthy communities. And so if people wanted to engage or get involved in your work, is there, a, you know, a place for that or, or how do they get in touch with you or someone in your organization or what would you suggest? Yeah. Thanks. Mary. So uh, I put it out there. So yeah, people I'm, I'm at the greater Burlington YMCA, which is at 298 college street. 
And my email is kdodson, K-D-O-D-S-O-N, at gbymca.org, and easily find. And uh, yeah, reach out. So as you say, Marianne, back here, and, and the thing that um, my team and I are working on is we've always uh, aspired uh, to be a convener in the community, uh, a place that brings together. <clears throat> and we think we already do it in one way. Uh, certainly the various uh, pieces of our operation uh, bring together, I might argue, as broad a cross-section of our community as any other uh, public-facing space does. If you come in over the course of a week, the range of people who use our wellness facilities, aquatics and fitness and the gym and the cardio, uh, it's a pretty broad uh, group. It's probably 15 or 16-year-old to 80. It's uh, the full uh, diversity complement of uh, race, ethnicity, uh, and language that we have in Burlington, I would say, uh, from what I see anecdotally, uses those facilities. Um, socioeconomics, uh, <clears throat> you know, we have people who are, are pretty modest and we actually probably support their uh, access to the uh, organization and then people who are very well resourced. But you wouldn't know it because it's, uh, you know, generally you can't tell uh, those socioeconomics in uh, gym shorts and a, and a t-shirt, <laughs> which right. is pretty much the op outfit. So, um, so we already convened, but we actually back to this idea of conversations, Mary, and what you and I are having is we want to be a convener of those of conversations. We think there's, uh, there's cause for and a need for all sorts of conversations uh, in the community. And we think that we're fairly well um, positioned to uh, facilitate uh, those conversations. So, so in the next, you know, six to 12 months, uh, you'll see us uh, partnering, partnering with people like the Racial Equity, Inclusion and Belonging uh, Office in the city um, or our uh, not-for-profit partners, Boys and Girls Club, King Street Youth Center, uh, et cetera, um, and other uh, potential partners, the Burlington School District, and nice. seeing if we can't be part of creating opportunities for people in the community to come together and talk about our community, where it's at, where we're heading, whether that be talking about schooling, talking about public safety, uh, talking about uh, job and employment opportunities, talking about food security. I mean, there's a lot of big issues. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, 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 awesome. our, that's our aspiration. Yeah, that's great work. Um, thank you again. Thank you for sharing you and thank you for um, the work that you're trying to do to move this change that it's really, as we said, when we were all walking, it, it's, it is slow change, but there's a need for change now. And how do for we sure make that is. happen? But, yeah. and you're at the forefront. So thank you so much. I, I, Again, appreciate your time so, so very much. My pleasure, Mary. Thanks for giving uh, me the opportunity and thanks for being such a um, uh, attentive, uh, compassionate listener. I appreciate it. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I just love that awe, right? I love that idea that we can invite awe into our life and that it can be a powerful tool to stay resilient. I also loved how he shared about being in his body through exercise. I do think there's things we do every day. I think the runners out there are meditating all the time, right? And I think I did that for years before I really hit the mat. So sometimes, especially when my life feels like it's moving and I can't sort of get all my ducks in a row, too many moving parts. If I get on my bike or I go for a run, I realize, um, 
it's a way to get in our bodies. It's a way to feel our bodies and get out of our monkey minds. So I love that he shared that as his tool of resiliency um, and just, you know, everyday stuff. Like he doesn't say, oh, today I'm going to get up and practice gratitude, although that can be a good idea. But he's sort of been doing it for so long, right, um, that he's built these practices in and he doesn't even really recognize them until he sits down and has a conversation with me about it. So maybe you have those things. And sometimes I just ask that you identify them, right? That's part of my coaching. Like, well, what is it? What do you pull on on those moments um, when you're struggling with life? And how do you find your way back to your guidance, your inner guidance, your wise, wise soul? And so I think he shared a few nuggets that were helpful in that way. But if you are someone that needs a little guidance, I also love that he shared, it's okay to feel sad when something in your life has happened that you're grieving about. Um, we often want to push them away. So that work that he's done around just understanding the feelings that belong, they're a natural response to what's going on. And we just have to get on our surfboards, bur- oh, sorry, surfboards and ride them out. Yeah. And um, even if you don't know how to surf, just float and then pull on those resiliency tools and they'll get you to the other side. And then you'll be all the wiser for it. If you just allow yourself to experience it, it's way easier than we make it, you guys. Um, And it's really hard at the same time. And I'm not going to because we have emotions. We have a limbic nervous system. So um, but we have a lot of tools and we have each other. And again, I'll just. Say if you're into a little coaching, I'm giving some free consultations, check out my website, uh, Mindful Living VT, and um, I have some offerings for you over there. Also check us out on Facebook and Instagram. I am doing a lot of journaling about my um, journey back into advanced health. I've always been pretty healthy. I eat clean. I've become quite a yogi. but I haven't pushed my edge around exercise for a while. And I'm tuning up my body at 55, soon to be 56, maybe by the time this airs. Um, And I just wanna see from a longevity lens, can I really tune myself up to feel fantastic? Um, I already have the power of the plants on my side and I've been doubling down on those. And I've been on my bike, I've been running, and I'm jumping in the water a little bit as it warms up here in Vermont. And so, yeah, I'm going to do a little triathlon just because it's good to have that out there as a little goal. But I'm going about it a little differently than I have in the past in that I'm allowing myself to listen to my body. And even if it's a day that I have on my schedule to run, I'm really going to, if I go out and I feel like a piece of lead, and I'm dragging my legs along, I'm going to choose to do that differently. I might choose yoga that day, or I might choose a walk, or I might choose a nap. (laughs) I don't know. And I'm just going to see, having been a competitive athlete throughout my life at different points and deep in my soul, been conditioned that way. I'm just wondering if I can get where I need to be to feel clean, clear, and bright, to feel the most beautiful version of myself, Um, by really listening to what my body's telling me to do. And at the end of the day, if it doesn't end up being a triathlon, I'm fine with that. I'm just really curious about the journey and I'm really enjoying um, pushing my edge right now because that's what feels good, balancing it with time on the mat. So um, yeah, so I'm kind of sharing a lot of that on Instagram. So if you want to follow that story, it's over there and maybe it'll inspire you. Um, So take good care. Have the best day. 
find something to celebrate and we'll see you next time.